I received a letter which I treasure some years ago from Nicholas Pickwode. I don't think I've ever announced this in front of you before. It said, I really haven't a clue as to why I'm writing this letter to you, but I am so bored <laughs> by having my English friends constantly tell me that I ought to write to you and come and lecture at uh, Columbia that I'm, I'm giving in. <laughs> and the rest is history. Nicholas has spoken here on a number of occasions before. We'll be teaching here uh, next summer in the 1987 Rare Book School, teaching uh, European bookbinding 1500-1800 in two sections, because I'm quite certain that the demand for this course will be immense, and with a speaker like ours tonight, how not? He speaks tonight on more stately mansions, or more properly, more stately mansions, since he's only talking about one of them, rare books in the National Trust in England. Nicholas Pickwode. Um, the poster, which arrived just in time for the lecture, uh, was miraculously accurate in as much as it shows the great pyramids of Giza. Uh, and I, by some strange fluke of Mr. Bellinger's uh, prophetic mind, uh, the house I'm going to talk about this evening, in fact, erected the first Egyptian obelisk in England uh, at the beginning of the last century. It was uh, put in place finally by the Duke of Wellington in a little ceremony on the lawn. Um, and the house does, in fact, have quite a lot strong Egyptological connection, so it couldn't have been more suitable. Uh, anyway, let's uh, turn out the lights, if I can manage to do that without turning the projector out as well. Um, for those of you, just quickly, who are not already familiar with the, uh, the nature and function of the National Trust, uh, just a, a very quick recap on its history and its purpose in life. Uh, it was founded in 1895 to preserve places of beauty and historic interest in England, Wales, and Northern Ireland. Scotland has its own National Trust, which runs in parallel with the, the English and Welsh and Northern Irish version. Um, initially, it was more concerned with landscape, uh, townscapes, small villages, market towns, and things of that sort. But towards the end of the 1930s, uh, particularly prompted by Lord Lothian, who was later ambassador in Washington, uh, they became aware of the fact that there was a great risk that some of the great country houses, which up until that time had seemed more or less permanent institutions on the landscape, were at risk from being abandoned by their families, no longer able to afford the upkeep of vast houses which can have anything up to two or three acres of lead work on the roof, uh, quite apart from all the garden and so on around them. Um, and it might be an idea, they felt, for the National Trust to take responsibility for some of these buildings as they were placed at risk or placed on the market. And Lord Lothian was as good as his word, in fact, left the first great house with its contents, Blickling Hall in Norfolk, to the National Trust, in a deal which was started before the war, um, and the house finally came through to the Trust after he died in 1942. Uh, since then, it has been given or has bought uh, with money largely subscribed by its members and more recently with grants available from the government, something in excess of 200 properties. And about 70 of these have libraries in them, uh, recognizable libraries. Others may just have two or three books on a, a window ledge. But still, there are some 70 libraries. And one of the most recent houses to come to the Trust is Kingston Lacey in Dorset, which some of you may have come across if you went to the, the Big Treasure Houses exhibition in Washington. A number of items from Kingston Lacey were in that exhibition, including one spectacular bookbinding, which we'll be seeing later. Um, 
It's not quite the newest. We have more to open yet, but Kingston Lacey is the most recent to be open to the public. And it was a very mysterious house, um, full of treasures and known to be full of treasures. Uh, it sits between Wimborne Minster and... Um, I can't remember the name of the other place now. It'll come back. Never mind. That's the one. Um, in Dorset and was lived in by the Banks family from its building in the 1660s until the donor died in 1981. Um, my job is to preserve the library there, obviously, but I thought it would be as well to give some of the background to the house and give you an idea of what the house looks like. This is the, the main entrance front. Um, and it was built for Sir Ralph Banks, uh, the younger son of Sir John Banks, who was the Chief Justice under Charles I, and died in 1644. He had a formidable wife, uh, by the name of Mary, Lady Mary Banks, who lived in the family seat at Corfe Castle during the Civil War, uh, having sent her sons abroad for safekeeping, um, keep them out of trouble. She then defended Corfe Castle on three separate occasions against the parliamentary forces until eventually was forced to give in. Um, so valiant was she thought to be by the opposing general that he allowed her to leave the castle in full possession of the keys of the castle, which still hang over the mantelpiece in the library, but there's not a single door left in the castle to fit them into. It was then slighted by the parliamentary troops. Um, anyway, come the restoration of the monarchy in 1660, the Banks family returned. Uh, Ralph Banks, the second son, the eldest son, had died uh, before the restoration, employed Sir Roger Pratt uh, as his architect to build a new house on a site some distance from Corfe Castle. Um, and the building took from 1663 through to 1665, quite a, a rapid piece of building for the time, um, and the house was then known as Kingston Hall. Uh, it was built of brick with Portland stone coins and mullion casement windows, um, and very little of that actual appearance of the house now survives except the basic outline of the house. Um, in fact, the, the original bank's house was two floors with a half basement, and when the house was remodelled in the 19th century, the ground was scraped away in front to create this three-storey plus an attic appearance, which you now see. But the basic shape of the two main floors, the Piano Nobile, now the first floor, and the floor above it, is that of Sir Roger Pratt, and the roof has been remodelled again in the 19th century. Henry Banks, the great-grandson of Ralph Banks, altered the house again in the 1780s, uh, and it is from his time that the present appearance of the great saloon dates, uh, with its painted ceiling by Cornelius Dixon, who also worked at Strawberry Hill. And you can see here, too, some of the great collection of paintings uh, still in the house. Um, the library dates from this time as well. However, a much more dramatic rebuilding of the house took place in the 1830s and 40s under Henry's son, William John Banks. He employed the architect Barry to remodel the house almost completely, giving it its new ground floor entrance hall, which you can see here, um, with the, the bogus Algardi bust of Sir John Banks. Uh, it may well be Algardi, but it certainly isn't Sir John Banks. Um, and the splendid marble staircase, which goes off to the left of this hall, rising through the main, the, the ground floor of the house, um, all Italian marble shipped over from Italy at the order of William John Banks, who, for reasons which we will come to, spent most of his adult life in Italy. Um, he was also responsible for the Spanish room, one of the more spectacular rooms in the house. Um, its walls hung with paintings by Murillo, Velasquez, and Zubarin, um, some copies, but mostly genuine and bought during an adventurous trip to Spain between 1812 and 1814, a period at which Spain was not a particularly peaceful country. He disguised himself in all sorts of ways and picked up the paintings that were falling out of the back of sacked and looted buildings. Um, he was a very early enthusiast of Spanish painting uh, and was therefore able, in fact, to get hold of paintings before they became extremely expensive. 
such, however, was the wealth of the family that that wouldn't necessarily have stopped him. The elaborately gilded ceiling came from the Palazzo Contarini degli Scrigni in Venice uh, and was offered to him whilst he was still living in England um, through a firm of Jewish antique dealers. Um, drawings were sent and he decided he wanted it and then it was altered to fit the, the space in the house. Uh, in 1841, William Banks jumped bail and fled the country following a successful prosecution for homosexuality and for the remainder of his life directed the rebuilding of the house from Venice where he died in 1855. There is an enormous collection of drawings and letters from him directing exact and very precise details about mouldings and architraves, details of how the doors were to be hung and so on. It's quite a, an extraordinary operation. There is a rumour that he did set foot in England once uh, it's known that he came in his yacht to within sight of the English coast to unload the things that he bought in Italy for the house. It is thought that he may have come ashore on one occasion, but I think this is likely to be a romantic rumour than anything, more than anything else. Um, it was his interest in Egyptology at the beginning of the century that led him to buy the obelisk, which I mentioned, which you'll see in a moment, the first to be set up in England, and also a collection of Egyptian statuary, including a superb basalt bust of Mark Antony, uh, and a collection of papyrus as well. Um, still unfinished at his death was the, the great bed he had carved for himself in Venice. Uh, you can't really see because they're dark and obscure, but along the very topmost part of the bed there is a, a line of bats hanging from the woodwork, all carved in wood. Uh, the bed caused more trouble than almost anything else because it was unfinished when he died, and when finished, the British consul was heartily sick of the correspondence that followed from trying to get payment for the uh, craftsman who'd made it. Um, and William Banks's brother did not wish to see this bed in the house, but it was anyway delivered, and there it is. And it's the bed in which the last Mr. Banks died. Um, at the beginning of this century, some further changes were made again to the house by Lady Banks, the mother of the donor, and here is her drawing room, um, very much in the Edwardian style. Um, the dining room, which was damaged by a fire in the late 19th century, was also redecorated at much the same time, with new panelling put in. Uh, though the ceiling survived the fire miraculously and, and dates from Barry's rebuilding of the house in the 1840s. Uh, you can also see in the corner the Judgment of Solomon by Se Sebastiano del Piombo, which is one of the most famous paintings in the house. Um, Henry Banks, who by some lucky or unlucky, I'm sure, so far as he was concerned, fluke, inherited Kingston Lacey at the age of two in 1904, um, and because of that, no death duties, no tax was paid until he died in 1981, but by leaving it to the trust, the duty was therefore deferred yet again. So the collection of paintings and in the entire contents of the house remained intact. Um, he did virtually nothing to the house himself uh, before he died in 18, 1981, and then gave its contents and its vast estate of some 16,000 acres to the National Trust. The estate still includes Corfe Castle, um, Studland Beach, uh, about 8,000 acres of coastline and woodland as well as 8,000 acres of arable farmland uh, some 340 cottages, houses and other buildings but back to the library um, there, oh, back to the library he says uh, there is the obelisk um, just to prove that it does have an obelisk um, like so much in the house very little was actually known about the library itself uh, and I'm just showing you the outside of the house where the library is um, the two left-hand windows to the left of the big arches of the what was once an open loggia on the main staircase contains the 18th century room that houses the library. When the National Trust took over, the, the library was almost completely undisturbed, so much so that the chains which were nailed across the front of the shelves in the 1960s when Mr. Banks was obliged to open the house to the public, having received a grant to repair his roof, 
Uh, he opened it for a few months, decided he didn't like it, and closed it again, uh, and refused to let the commissioners enter when they asked to. Um, the chains were still in place in 1981 when I first visited the house, and we had to get a pair of pliers and take them off the front of the shelves. Um, such neglect, whilst in some ways a, a useful protection, automatically makes one wonder what may have been going on behind the chains. And the answer to this question was my first priority when I started my visit, first visit to the house. I was looking particularly for damp, mold and insects and mice infestation. We knew that the house was riddled with virtually everything. Dry rot had been identified some 15 years before Mr. Banks died and he decided he was too old to do anything about it and so just left it alone. Um, but before going inside the house, I always take a look outside to see what signs of risk there may be from the outside. And if you look at those two windows, you can see the fact that there's condensation on the glass. There's a, a slight gray misting on them. And it's important to go outside to look for this sort of thing because inside um, there is no evidence of the windows. That is the same wall. The man in the front is James Lees Milne, who was thinking of writing a book on the strange William John Banks, um, and still maybe for all I know. Um, fortunately, these windows haven't proved a problem. There's a four-inch thick barrier of solid slate within, inside the window embrasure, which has managed to keep the weather out quite effectively. But it is a potential worry and one thing that I had to check out. Uh, the room, as you can see it in this slide, is as it was taken over. And there's really very little apparent sign of damage. Um, it looks just like a rather dusty library. Um, but I'd like you just to take a look on the shelves directly over James Lee's Milne's head, uh, because you'll see a slide of that same shelf later on. Um, one of the aims of a program in a house like this is not to make it look restored, but to try and preserve as much as possible, whilst preserving the contents, the actual appearance and flavor and character of the rooms themselves. Um, as I've said, high humidity was a particular problem in this library, and one of the tests I had to make was to check that the humidity behind the books on the shelves was not higher than it was in the room. I found in a number of National Trust properties that there can be as much as a 10% difference between the space behind the books and the relative humidity in the middle of the room, and this is quite enough to tip the balance over uh, to allow mold to grow behind the books, even though the room itself may be uh, thought reasonably safe with a humidity in the high 60s. Um, I was particularly worried to look out for books in cupboards, um, and the, book, the cupboards at the bottom of the bookcases were full of books, and a considerable amount of mold growth was found in them. Um, and this is the sort of thing that we are finding now. Uh, books not yet permanently marked by mold, but certainly well on the way to being so. More damaging still than the mold are the insects, obviously, which follow on with it, particularly silverfish, um, who had made literal mincemeat of a great many of the paper-bound books in the cupboards. The larvae of the brown house moth, which seem to restrict their activities to leather, uh, and you can see the mold on the books here as well, um, as well as the, the grub itself. Uh, woodworm, furniture beetle, again attracted to damp, mold damage areas of the books. Deathwatch beetle, um, the house was riddled with death watch beetle and it was inevitable that the library would also be infected and it was extremely badly infected with death watch beetle. Uh, that's one of the exit holes. Um, and in fact an adult beetle which was killed during the fumigation that we had carried out on the books and discovered after the books came back to the house, um, proving at least that the fumigation worked I suppose. And the sort of damage that could be done to the books which were left, say, undisturbed for a considerable length of time during Mr. Banks' ownership of the house. I don't suppose he looked at many of the books even before he nailed the chains across them. 
There was also trouble with again, uh, Death Watch Beetle once more. There was also trouble with mice. Um, the mice had had free run in the cupboards. There were gaps in the floorboards at the back of the cupboards. They were coming up through the f- from the floor below. Um, not fortunately onto the open shelves themselves, but only in the cupboards. And you can see the, the damage here is caused by a mouse eating all the vellum it could get access to when there was a smaller book sitting on top of this one, hence the, the very neat nibbled line. I'm sure there's a, if we could only train them, there's a use for them somewhere. Um, mice, again, um, they don't necessarily eat to consume. They eat to just annoy the rest of us, I suspect, but, uh, and keep their teeth in trim. Uh, sunlight was not a particularly bad problem at Kingston Lacey, but the, the wall, the fireplace wall, which faced the south-facing windows, was damaged to some extent. This, in fact, is from a, a different house, but just to show the sort of damage that one can expect and the extensive damage to the spines themselves from the prolonged exposure to sunlight. Um, it's important to think about the damage to the spines of the books because we're not dealing with individual books that one can treat in isolation. We're talking about a collection of books which in fact full forms possibly half or even more of the surface area of a room. So if you're thinking in terms of rebacking or repairing or putting leather dressing on, you are actually controlling the appearance of the room to a large extent. And it's very important to be very much aware of the damage that you can do with careless handling of such books. And we'll come to that later on. Um, another thing one has to bear in mind when thinking about light damage and light control is that the view from the windows, this is actually a fraud because it's the view from the windows of the library at Tatton Park in Cheshire, but it's such a nice picture I couldn't resist putting it in. Uh, The view of Kingston Lacey is every bit as nice, I'm sure. Um, The view from the house is part of the house. The house was designed to sit in a place where the views would work particularly well. The grounds were planted with trees, given lakes, whatever the owner thought he would want. Uh, eye-catching monuments, fragments of fake ruin and so on, to be seen from the house. And one cannot therefore simply pull the blinds down to protect the contents of the house. One has to compromise to some extent. We can use ultraviolet filters on the windows and Kingston Lacey is equipped throughout with ultraviolet filters. Holland blinds being pulled down from above can be used to control really bright days by pulling them halfway down, down to about six foot from the floor. The windows in the library at Kingston Lacey are about ten foot high. So one can cut out a lot of the light, and particularly the light that reaches the walls, by pulling the blinds halfway down, but people can still see out of the windows. As soon as the house closes to the public, the blinds are drawn the full way down, and the wooden shutters are shut, and are not opened again until the house opens again to the public, or if there's work going on in the rooms that needs light. Uh, Anyway, this is the sort of damage which I look out for in my first survey, which is a sort of general condition report, trying to identify the main areas of concern and outlining the suggested remedies. And at this point, I will tie in with the other conservators, furniture, paintings, textiles, conservators, and so on, to see if we actually need the same things or whether we have conflicting aims which need to be reconciled before work is actually started off. And at this point, I'm not really very much concerned with repairs to the individual books. Uh, This is in January 1982, a year after the House came to the Trust um, and the date of my first visit. Uh, There was an immense amount of legal clearing up, as you might imagine, with an estate this size before anybody was allowed in to start doing things to the house. Um, The repairs to individual books is a task to be considered much later on in the program, but the prevention of further damage is the main concern. Um, I'm concerned to find out about the storage problems which the library was suffering from. The books pushed to the back of the cupboards and just crushed by other larger books being pushed in on top of them. Uh, This sort of thing 
the damage you'll get from a shelf that has been broken across, a wooden shelf that is split, the front half of the shelf sags under the weight of the books. There is not so much of the weight of the books on the back half, so that little ledge sticks up halfway across the shelf, and as the books are pushed in, so the leather is scraped off the bottom edge of them. Uh, making sure that the storage of the books has at least got decently under control, and this sort of thing is not allowed to happen. Uh, making sure that the shelf adjusting, adjustment system itself isn't damaging the books. This is the sort of damage you'll get from bookcases which have grooves cut into the side of the shelves, which allows insects and dust and dirt generally to filter down the sides of the books in these horizontal bands, causing this sort of differential staining, which is impossible to remove. Um, I am, however, particularly concerned to identify important and vulnerable material at this stage to make sure that it is not carelessly handled and damaged after the National Trust has taken over. And there are particular examples here, uh, such as this binding by Jean de Planche, uh, a bigamous Frenchman working in London to avoid the claims of his wife in, the, in Rouen. Uh, he described her as une paillade, which I will not translate, um, and then married again in London to the considerable distress of the lady in Rouen. Um, in the midst of all this, he bound some of the most sumptuous books produced in London in the 1570s and 80s. And this particular example was bound by him with the arms of Sir Nicholas Bacon, father of Francis Bacon, painted on the, the front of it, on a piece of vellum. Um, it has a pierced board, outer board, with uh, goatskin underneath in the pierce, pierced areas, uh, heavily, as you can see, painted, gold-tooled and decorated, magnificent gilt goffered edges, and so on, and one or two features I'll show you later on. Uh, this clearly is something that's not to be packed up along with the rest of the books and ignored. Um, it was last seen in public, in fact, in 1891, um, and was shut up in a cupboard after it returned from the Burlington Fine Arts Club exhibition of bookbindings in that year, and never brought out again until I found it there in the cupboard in 1982, um, stacked with all the Victorian photograph albums, which it, curious enough, rather resembled in the half-light, and I didn't believe it could be what it was until it came out. Um, another particular surprise was the single leaf of one of the great Bibles written for the abbot Chelfrith of Jarrow and Wearmouth sometime before his death in 712, wrapped around some property deeds in the archive. Um, which, again, I found in the archive in one of the tin trunks, in fact, in the overflow archive in the boot room in the cellar on the damp floor in a box full of material eaten by insects and mice. And at the bottom, below the area that they'd actually reached at that stage, was this document. Um, it's proved of particular interest because it gives a date for the destruction of the manuscript it came from, or at least an earliest date at which it was being used. Uh, at the top there, you can just see the signature of Francis Willoughby, um, the family that lived and built Wallerton Hall in Nottingham, uh, later given the title Lord Middleton. And in fact, the other 14 leaves of this manuscript which have been discovered, I believe 14 is the number, uh, all come from the Middleton archive. Uh, and this is the first to appear for some 40 or 50 years. Um, one hopes it's not the last, there should be more. They clearly had the book in 1586 when this schedule of deeds was drawn up concerning a parcel of land that they were selling in Dorset to Sir Christopher Hatton. The Banks family then bought this land from Sir Christopher Hatton, um, and the schedule of deeds came to Kingston Lacey, where it sat ever since. In fact, the archive was every bit as neglected as the library. That's just a photograph of one of the tills, um, or the cupboards of tills, under the main staircase. Uh, and you can see an extremely dirty, dingy collection of archives, um, much damaged by insect and mold, but a complete and very important archive 
though sadly not containing any of the parliamentary and political material belonging to Sir John Banks, the Chief Justice who founded the family fortunes in the early 17th century. Um, but looking at this picture, it, I think it's time to just consider briefly the sort of damage which is done in disturbing a collection of this sort. It's wonderfully exciting to open the door on this sort of material and find it all bundled and packed and wrapped, like this collection of pamphlets here, uh, again, not from Kingston Lacey in this instance, but from a house in Cheshire called Dunham Massey. They are the notebooks of the Earl of Warrington, who went on the grand tour in the 18th century and simply had all these wrapped up and shipped back and never opened them again. Uh, this particular packet has been left wrapped up, in a sense, to preserve some of the mystery. It turns out the other packets are so monumentally boring that nobody wants to read them. Uh, so we've, this is probably the one that contains the old master drawings, however. Um, but it is a serious point that one in going through a house like this to preserve it, you do inevitably break the spell, if you like, uh, which has been created by the neglect of the previous generations. It's inevitable but sad. And the Trust do try to photograph as much of pos as possible of the original condition. Anyway, to the action taken as a result of this first survey. The decision was taken to fumigate the books in the archive. There were two reasons for this. One, obviously, was that they were badly infected. The other was that the books had to be stored during the rebuilding of the house. The entire house was stripped of its contents for three years and everything had to be put somewhere. And it was not wise, clearly, to take a collection of badly infected books to another National Trust property and simply infect that property as well. Um, at that date, ethylene oxide fumigation was still available in Britain. It's since been withdrawn because of the health, damage, health danger. Um, the, fume, the vacuum chambers are mostly in built-up areas, and this was obviously considered unsafe. Uh, but at that stage, it was still possible to use the Museum of Mankind chamber in North London. And the material was sent down there uh, to be fumigated and then shipped to the attics at Starhead, where it was stored during the rebuilding. Um, considerable care was obviously taken in packing and in sorting the material. The books were each individually wrapped in acid-free tissue and then placed in the skips in which they were sent off to the fumigation chamber. Uh, that is the librarian that is back to us and the regional representative in charge of the entire operation and his secretary all came in to help pack the library up. We had to sort through the archive to remove all the documents with wax seals which could have exploded had they got air pockets inside them when the vacuum was pulled in the vacuum chamber. Um, there is obviously now considerable problem and controversy over mold fumigation um, and I'm not sure what I would now do were I faced with the same problem again. Clearly, fumigation of some sort, if the books were to be stored elsewhere, would be necessary, but how to do it now, I'm not quite sure. Um, anyway, the books went straight from the vacuum chamber to the Starhead Attics, uh, and while some work was done on them while they were there, it proved too time-consuming, unwrapping and repacking the books, um, and we decided to defer the work until the books came back to the house. Uh, whilst the books, however, were out of the house, and the house itself was being considerably rebuilt, the opportunity was taken to modify the shelving to make sure that it was properly ventilated in future. And you can see here a cross-section of one of those blocked-up windows. Um, and the instruction, my instructions to the staff in the house which was to cut off the shaded area at the back of the shelves simply to open up a space for the air to move up the back of the case and try and keep the back of the wall dry. And also a modification to the bottom of the cupboard doors so that the cupboards themselves could be ventilated. And this is an enlargement of that. It was done simply enough by cutting the bottom of the door off at an angle like that and also the, the front of the cupboard base itself and the removal of a thin batten which was nailed along the floor. The change in the visual appearance of the room is virtually 
unnoticeable, but it does open up a sufficient gap to get the air moving through the cupboard space to dry out the cupboards. And then with a row of holes drilled in the bottom case, bottom shelf of the open part of the bookcase to connect the cupboard with the opened up back to the bookcase. And this work and other similar work was done throughout the library whilst the books were at Starhead. Um, the books came back in April 1985, but this, to show, again, it's a different house, obviously. This is the library at Blickling Hall in Norfolk, to show quite how extensive some of this modification work can be. Uh, we discovered, rather to our horror, on two separate occasions, Death Watch Beetle in the books in the library at Blickling Hall over the last five years. And I managed to persuade the trust to go to the expense of pulling one of the cases out from the wall, and we found that all the sapwood in the oak at the back of the bookcases was still infested with Death Watch Beetle. They'd taken the floor up some 20 years ago to treat that, but hadn't removed the bookcases, um, and the infestation had remained in the, shelves, the shelving itself. And we've now taken all the bookcases up, down from the, shelf, from the walls. You can see the bare brickwork at the very end of the room now. Each shelf has been extended by a three-inch batten along the back. You can see the pale wooden batten uh, just in front of the man on the staircase there, on the steps, rather. Um, this was to allow the books to sit within the, sh the width of the shelves. We had particular problems with the old grills on the cases hitting the backs of the books because the shelves weren't wide enough. Also, the narrow shelves meant we couldn't ventilate the books properly. We've now got the extra three inches that gives us the room to do both these things. And we've had new metal grills made, which are actually secure. The old ones were extremely inconvenient to handle uh, and were not secure even when in place. Uh, the total cost of this work is going to be something in the region of 80 to 100,000 pounds, which is a very considerable expense, obviously. Kingston Lacey was much cheaper because it was less complicated work. Anyway, when the books came back, uh, we set up a small first aid program, um, employing four bookbinders to do some basic and simple but necessary repairs, including cleaning the books. Um, it was the essential work, if you like, to make the books as safe to handle as possible, as well as to look as good as possible in the room when the house opened to the public, which is one of our major considerations. There were no major repairs included in this work, obviously, but cleaning the books, pasting back the loose leather, torn covering materials of one sort or another, loose labels and so on, some basic paper repair done to avoid further damage, uh, refolding and resorting crumpled folding plates so that the dirt wouldn't filter down the books quite so badly as it might, tipping in loose fly leaves, binding up the damaged books, the books with the boards off with cotton tapes and so on. It's a, a holding operation, if you like. Um, making wrappers for some of the vulnerable paper-bound material uh, which needed protection, especially as the library would, is now going to be handled by the staff in the house year by year in dusting, so we need to make sure that the books can be taken off the shelves and put back without further damage. Um, and the application, the careful application of leather dressing. Um, this is a slide just to show what can happen if leather dressing is applied over indulgently to sun-damaged leather. It blackens and completely disfigures the appearance of the book. Uh, and you can imagine the effect that this would have on a whole room full of books. It would destroy the appearance of the room. Um, by using trained binders rather than volunteers, one is able at least to guarantee that a certain standard of work is adhered to. Though we were able to use volunteers to help with the work and two, two volunteers out of a group of four came in each morning for an hour or an hour and a half to polish off the books which had had leather dressing applied to them and put them back on the shelves. And by saving that hour and a half each morning, in fact they speeded up the work very considerably and it proved a very useful use of volunteer help. And we got through the entire library of some 3,000 books in three weeks rather than the four which I'd 
estimated it might have taken. Um, another innovation used on a large scale for the first time in this particular house was the result, again, of this need to preserve the appearance of the room whilst at the same time giving some sort of support and protection to books which are suffering from standing upright on the shelves. We haven't got the option of boxing everything because that would destroy the appearance of the room. Um, but in order to try and cope with this sort of thing, the sagging of the larger, heavier text blocks onto the shelf, uh, an extreme example, um, a book in limp covers, a limp vellum binding, which is clearly not up to standing upright on its own. Um, a book with textile ties which are caught on a screw at the back of the bookcase and are being ripped to pieces uh, as it's pulled out, in fact, ripping the book to pieces, risk of it if uh, it's firmly enough fixed to the screw. Uh, the books with metal fittings which need to be wrapped up to protect the books on either side of them. Um, all these things need to be looked after, including some of the fine bindings. There are some particularly nice bindings. This is on uh, a copy of Herbert's De la Verite of 1633, one of the presumably presentation copies with his emblem on the front board. Um, something which one wants to make sure is not going to get scratched and damaged or disfigured in any way in handling. Um, and the answer to this is what we call a, a book shoe, which I originally designed as a rather more elaborate construction, and then Tony Keynes and Chris Clarkson came in on the idea and modified it considerably to make it a much more versatile and a much cheaper piece of protective uh, wrapping, if you like. And it's rather like a, a, a slipcase without a top, if you like, which has a text block packing piece at the bottom to keep the text block off the shelf. It will enclose the book on the foredge and both the sides and therefore protect it from damage either from the books next door or prevent it from damaging the books next door. It will contain the textile ties and anything of that sort that the book may have. Uh, it would also reduce the, the wear on the bottom edge of the book as the books are pulled out of the shelves, which is another plus, particularly if you have a rather sharp edge to the shelves. And because much of our shelving is historic in itself, we can't simply shave off the edge of the shelves uh, to make a nice rounded edge. If Chippendale left it square, we've got to leave it square. So. It does have that advantage. The board chosen is a, a one millimeter mill board, a very dense, strong board, and it's come, we have them pre-creased in four standard sizes and then cut them down to fit the books and glue the two halves together um, in the course of putting them together using PVA and using the offcuts to build up the text block packing piece at the bottom. Uh, all that we need to do this in the way of heavy equipment is a portable board chopper with a 27 inch blade which travels to the house and is set up on a table. Uh, during the work and the aim is that the effect on the room will be minimal and that is the shelf over James Lee's Milne's head uh, and you can just see if you look carefully two books at the left have shoes on them but there are in fact shoes on two thirds of the books in that shelf um, and really as yet nobody visiting the house has said what horrible things you've got around these books nobody so far as we know has even noticed them so it has been a successful experiment um, we found that two people working together can make 30 of them a day uh, which means you can actually get through quite a lot of them in the course of a, a three or four week program. In general terms, the binders were treating 50 books a day for first aid repair, um, which is the sort of rate I would hope in a library that is not too badly damaged by way of torn covering materials. Um, whilst all this was going on, I was carrying out my second survey, which is listing all the damaged books on a standard form, which I take around with me, uh, which describes the type of binding, the size of the book, the nature of the damage in a very brief description, and also the suggested treatment. So I can work out from a distance over the subsequent years 
what sort of work can be afforded within the budget which has allowed me order books to be sent to London and from there I can either take them up to my own workshop or send them off to other binders who we also occasionally use to do the work. Um, it's very important this, otherwise one is faced with the job of travelling around the country like a demented uh, banshee picking up books all year round in order to work on them in the time that you don't have left. Um, it also provides a record in the case of future damage. I know when I finish the report that I have recorded all the major and noticeable damage. So if we do find that boards are coming off or there are major scratches or other sorts of damage, that somebody in the house is not handling the books carefully and we can make sure that that is put right. Every repaired book has a brief report uh, on a record sheet which I keep and also a copy of it tipped into the back of the repaired book. Again, because with a scattered collection of libraries, as the National Trust has, central records are of limited value. If somebody is in the house and they need to see the records, it's important that the record is there as well as in the central depository, which in this case is my office. Um, the repairs that we do carry out must obviously respect the untouched nature of a library like this. It is an Im immensely valuable resource, not only in the history of binding technique. Um, one just has these very nice, undisturbed 16th and 17th century books in this library. This one, in fact, belonged to Anna Bacon, the wife of Sir Nicholas Bacon, and these two books were kept by the Banks family as relics of the great Bacon family and were regarded as heirlooms and perhaps one of the reasons why they were left scrupulously untouched. Uh, they were referred to in a letter by William John Banks in Venice as heirlooms. He was particularly keen that they should be looked after and not damaged in the rebuilding of the house. Um, that is the, the outer cover of the same book. Um, you find some of the binding technique obviously is not so good as it might be some of you have seen this slide before it's Kingston Lacey that this example of uh, pamphlet binding appeared it's in a, a volume of 17th century pamphlets and it was a, a little too big um, it presents me with a considerable problem because what do we do with it um, here is 17th century binding possibly at its worst um, but we can't simply rebind to preserve it better because we then do lose a particularly telling insight into what a binder would do when pushed. Um, so uh, the decision is made by deferring a decision. Um, and uh, so long as we go on discussing it, the book remains untouched. Some very unusual things turn up. Uh, this is uh, another pamphlet wrapped up in the leather of an early 16th century Dutch or Flemish binding. Uh, you can see the blind tool pattern in it, uh, possibly German, I'm not going to quibble over that, uh, and then simply with a paper paste down on the inside and a piece of marble paper on the outside. Um, you've got a nice example of that in the Book Arts Press, actually, clasps uh, using leather off an old binding. Um, sometimes what you find is unique. This is a detail of the Deplanche binding on the book for Sir Nicholas Bacon, and you'll see that the end band, instead of stopping on the joint of the book, carries on to the board, sandwiched between the two laminations of the board, set into the little step, and worked around a piece of, or through a piece of vellum with a length of gut to provide the bulk um, to work the threads round. It goes right the way round the edge of the binding. Uh, you can see here along the bottom edge, it goes round the corner, along the foredge, along the top edge, and links up with the headband. It is one continuous end band. Um, it's one of the most important reasons why we aren't going to touch this book. De Planche is known to have done this. The only other recorded example was in the British Library until it was repaired. It was referred to in 1912. It was repaired sometime between then and now, and the, the end band has gone. Um, this is the only surviving example that I know of and that Miriam Foote knows of, and we don't know of any other binder who is doing it. You can also see the Gilton Gofford Edge 
of the book. It's a particularly spectacular, not to say vulgar, piece of bookbinding. Um, surviving largely through neglect, as well as this uh, role it had as an heirloom in the family possessions. Small, minute details are particularly telling. Because the end bands are damaged at both head and tail, the headband, in fact, has gone, only the tail band survives. One can see in this tiny crumb of leather here the turnover of the head cap. You can see where the cap went. Um, it's the only indication of how that particular part of the binding was finished off, and I'm very anxious that this is be pulled out of the box without being touched itself and can be examined without ever leaving the chemise. Um, it can be turned over within it to see either side of it. Um, if necessary, it can be picked up by getting one's fingers into the cutouts of the baseboard and getting a good firm grip on the inside the edge of the book. The edge is particularly vulnerable to damage because the leather is quite badly damaged uh, and is likely to break away if strained too much. So it is now protected in this form. We do obviously have to box some material, uh, but this was never on an open shelf in any case. Um, there are some fine pieces of literature too, including these copies of the first editions of Paradise Lost and Paradise Regained in Red Morocco, and curiously so, um, not books often seen in contemporary bindings of such extravagance, um, and bought by a heavily royalist family as well, who'd suffered greatly under... John Milton's friends. Um, but there they are, in any case. The library also contains, clearly, a large family archive as well, if only in the ownership inscriptions found in the books, dated here with a price as well. John Banks was the eldest of the three sons of Sir John Banks, uh, the ones sent abroad for their own safety during the Civil War. And he had a tendency, in fact, though not in this particular instance, of writing his name in the language of the country he visited. So normally in Paris, he signed himself Jean Banks. Uh, when he went to Italy, he became Giovanni Banks. Off in Germany, he became Johann Banks. Um, and back in England, he was John Banks again, except he died before he inherited. But anyway, um, it is a fascinating insight into the, into the family and the owners of the books. Uh, and I think it's a part of the libraries which are, is often ignored. Uh, and very sadly so, that they do contain a lot of the personality of the people who own the house, uh, more so than almost anything else that you will find in the house apart from the archive material. Um, we aim basically with repair to do as little as possible and only when necessary, simply to avoid further damage um, and to do as little within each repair as we can in order to achieve that aim. And we are very lucky to have some remarkably well-preserved 16th and 17th century books. Uh, this copy of Fox's Ecclesiastical Histories is typical of the condition of some of the earlier printed books in the library. Uh, magnificent things just pulled off the shelf in that state. This Book of Common Prayer of 1616, again, ragged on the spine, but when one gets to the sides, uh, magnificently preserved. And another English binding on a book printed in Antwerp in 1623. Um, bright and clean and lovely. And we particularly want to avoid this sort of thing. This, in fact, is from another National Trust library, a repair carried out some years ago. And the piece of paper now put into it is a rather sad note from the previous library's advisor to the National Trust. As far as I remember, this came from Rawlinson's library and had a note in his hand. If so, this has perished in the rebinding, though I believe the instruction was simply renew backstrip. Um, it is a very sad comment on what can happen if repair work is not very tightly controlled and very carefully considered. Much more important to me is to ensure the annual maintenance of the books. Uh, the careful 
dusting of the books each year and the chance that that gives for a visual examination of the books to see whether there is any renewed insect infestation or mold growth. In a house of this age, there is a constant risk of both. They don't naturally look after themselves as well as they might, um, and a check is now kept on these things. We have a, a recording thermohygrograph in the more vulnerable rooms now, uh, a machine called a squirrel, which is simply records the information which is then at three monthly intervals fed into a computer and a printout obtained to give a very accurate hourly reading of the conditions in the room which is proving very useful um, particularly as the large south facing windows in this library are resulting in very sharp fluctuations in temperature during the summer and resulting fluctuations in humidity and we've got to try and find a way around this though it's not at all easy um, we're planning also provision of more shelving of this sort um, this is at Ickworth in Suffolk where the cupboards again were particularly dangerous and we took the large folios out of the cupboards and stored them all in new shelving flat in one of the storerooms upstairs uh, and there's similar shelving being built at Kingston Lacium again in an upstairs room which is not open to the public to take the books from the cupboards and other books found elsewhere in the house which have no particular home at the moment um, we're also investigating on a, a nationwide basis for the National Trust proper disaster preparation and also the use of salvage squads which proved extremely effective in emptying the contents at Hampton Court during the fire there last year. Regularly trained groups who meet once a month to practice the work that they might have to be called on to carry out who in fact in Hampton Court retrieved everything out of the damaged rooms except one painting in 20 minutes and before the fire brigade even arrived to put the fire out. Um, we're trying to now to get each of the major properties at least equipped with volunteers living within seven miles of the house who will come at short notice, I mean not short notice, at no notice at all, uh, and empty and know exactly what they're going to do. There are considerable problems with this because it's been discovered uh, by the fire department long ago that anybody over the age of 40 is unsuitable for this work on the whole because they are unable to operate within the smoke-filled rooms. Um, and so, therefore, the volunteer groups have to be young and extremely fit and active in order to be of any use at all. Somebody who's coughing themselves silly in a room and can't lift anything is not going to be very useful in such an emergency. They also found at, Kingston, at Hampton Court that the well-trained group that they had was completely disoriented by the smoke. They couldn't find the doors. They were bumping into each other. And they now go for training in the local fire, county fire offices where they have a a special room which can be filled with a non-toxic smoke to give people some idea of what it is like so they have to learn how to what extent they will need to grope their way through the building to what extent they will need to grope their way through the building and not rely on their eyes at all uh, simple things like steel cap boots they need a picture frame was dropped in Hampton Court broke the toes of one of the volunteers who was then out of action for the program um, with Upwards of 200 properties, this is a considerable problem for the Trust, but a house like Kingston Lacey clearly merits that sort of treatment. The Sebastiano, in fact, is fitted on a pulley system which can be, allows the painting to be pulled out from the wall and lowered gently to the floor on counterweights and then be taken straight through the smashed window that it is next to in the event of any fire alarm in the house. Um, such things are uh, very important to get right and organised in advance of the fire itself. Um, the repairs to the books, finally, will take years to complete. They'll be dependent on the funds to carry out the work, obviously, and the extent to which we believe that they are important. But having stabilized the collection, and I believe we have now stabilized the collection, <clears throat> the repairs can afford to wait if necessary. Um, 
we have at least time in which to think about it. Um, the aim of the whole program, finally, is not to make the House look as if it's been restored. This is one of the firm injunctions given to all the Conservatives when the work started. Um, it's easy and tempting to make things look new. It's much harder to make things look simply as if they've been very carefully cleaned. The fact that the house has been entirely gutted, floors taken up, a lot of the plasterwork taken down and put back again, uh, wall hangings taken off, the leather wall hangings in the Spanish room were all taken off and shipped to Denmark for treatment and brought, no, to Holland, Mr. Van's first, um, and brought back again. One hopes that when people go into the house, they simply won't know that all this has been done. And this is a, a slide of the completed library. Um, you can see some of the black tapes used to bind the books together that are in pieces. But you can't, well, possibly because the slide is somewhat out of focus. Um, but uh, I should think at least half the books on that end wall, which contain the earlier books, are sitting in these book shoes. I don't think they're visible. The room, to my mind anyway, looks very much like the original room, simply cleaned um, and put back together again, looking as if it has been, in fact, well-maintained throughout its career, which was very far from the case. Um, and I rather hope that uh, some of you at least will have a chance to see it and to appreciate the rest of the house as well. You can see the keys of Corfe Castle over the fireplace there in the two wooden frames um, and family portraits, obviously, around the top of the bookcases. Thank you very much.